The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 18, Fantastic Four, number one. Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris, and in this episode, I will be joined by special guest Tollworthy to discuss one of the most important comic books of all time, Fantastic Four, number one. Fantastic Four, number one, cover dated November 1961, of course, is famous for launching what now is known as the Marvel Universe. Credited to the team of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, Fantastic Four number one ushered in a new age not just of superhero comics or Marvel comics, but of how comics are made and what fans expect from comics. Over the decades, though, controversy has grown over exactly who did what and who deserves the credit for Fantastic Four number one. Today's guest has made a name for himself online as one of the most passionate Fantastic Four fans around. Author and creator of the website The Fantastic Four... The Great American Novel. Tollworthy has recently written an entire book called The Case for Kirby, where he goes panel by panel breaking down Fantastic Four number one, doing a deep dive into the source material and uncovering contextual clues that he believes proves that the Fantastic Four were created by Jack Kirby, were an extension of Kirby's previous work at DC with the Challenges of the Unknown, and that Stanley's contributions could charitably be called editing and uncharitably defacing. In this episode, Tollworthy and I will go through Fantastic Four number one and his book, The Case for Kirby, and discuss just who contributed what to Fantastic Four number one, to Fantastic Four as a series in general, to the success of Marvel Comics as a whole, and exactly what credit means and whether or not it even matters who deserves the credit for works like Fantastic Four number one. So I hope you'll enjoy this deep dive into Marvel lore. Of course, as always, before we get to that, I'll be interviewing Tollworthy about his history as a comic book reader and fan to get a little bit of context on where he's coming from with his viewpoints. So I hope you enjoy that conversation and the conversation that follows about Fantastic Four number one by Jack Kirby. the first comic book that you ever read? Probably the best answer is Fantastic Four issue 7, the Planet X one. Um, in that we had this big Marvel annual. So here in Britain, I live in Scotland, so I was living in England then. Um, we have Fantastic Four and so on, all part of these anthologies. And uh, 1972 had a particularly good annual. These are big hardback things, much bigger paper size, really good paper quality. Kind of rough paper, but I think it's just, just perfect. Kind of like the paper they draw on. Anyway, this one had Spider-Man and various other things that didn't interest me. But at the back, it had this Fantastic Four story. And I must have been about, say, 1972, I'd have been four years old. Yeah, although I would have seen it a bit later. Maybe I read it when I was six or something. Anyway, oh, man, this is just the best thing ever. I know that a lot of people don't like Fantastic Four 6, 7, sorry, 7. And I've heard a lot of people say it's kind of stupid and it's got all these flaws and, ah, oh, that's fighting talk. No, this is one of the most perfect comics ever. The fact that I was six years old, of course, there's nothing to do with it. I had tremendously good judgment even back then. And it was a, it was just superb. And the, the last frame, I don't know if you remember the story where they come back on Planet X and they've shrunk the, the aliens and they say that the universe is so big that having a different size from everybody else wouldn't matter because you'd never meet anybody else. Oh, that just blew my mind. Just the size of the universe. Loved it, loved it, loved it. So um, my first issue of Fantastic Four was number 280. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was coming into it a little bit later. <clears throat> but um, when I first started collecting back issues, I immediately wanted to get the oldest ones that I could get my hands on. And it was a little while later, but not that much into my collecting that I got my first real, like, really old comic. And it was Fantastic Four number seven. I uh, don't, ah. don't remember what I paid for it, but there was, it was a, a bargain, whatever it was. Yeah, there was a period there where I had, like, Fantastic Four number seven and number 61, and then I had, like, 280 and up. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, I actually don't remember that much about the story. I didn't, I no longer have the issue 
there came a, a point a couple years into my collecting where I, I was really into Fantastic Four. This was right at the end of the John Byrne run. And I was also really into Avengers when Roger Stern was writing. So this is like uh, 80, 86, beginning 87. And I had about the same number of back issues or total issues of both series, but I, I didn't have the resources really to keep collecting back issues of both of them simultaneously because I just, you know, I was a little kid on a... Yeah, like it got pretty expensive. Yeah, so I... You know, my dad said, why don't you focus on collecting just one title and then when you're done, then you can move on to the other one. So that sounded like a good idea. So I I remember setting out all my Fantastic Four and Avengers issues on my bed and having this like real intense like uh, decision process. Which comic was I going to (laughs) focus on? And at the time, you know, the early Fantastic Fours just seemed out of reach. You know, the first issue at that time was worth something incredible, like $1,500. (laughs) <laughs> um, whereas Fant- uh, Avengers 1 was was only 400 in near mints and it felt like it was theoretically possible. So just based on the, the finances of it, I ended up going with <laughs> Avengers and I eventually, you know, completed my full run of Avengers and ended up loving Avengers. But I kind of dropped Fantastic Four pretty soon after that. The Steve Englehart run just didn't grab me. So it's sort of the road less taken. I, I could have been where you are if I had just... <laughs> picked Fantastic Four instead of Avengers that day. Oh, no, I'm totally on board. I think I was incredibly lucky in that the first three Fantastic Four stories I saw were absolutely brilliant. It's like the best of best. And I just assumed they were all like that. You know, I must get these. And I do totally understand that there have been a lot of, I wouldn't say clunkers, but yeah, some of them are hard to defend. (laughs) And even the ones I love, I can see why other people don't love them. So, no, I'm totally on board there. So, other than Fantastic Four number one, if you reread it for this, what was the le- uh, the most recent comic that you've read? Um, that would actually be, I'm working my way through the Monster Bus issue one, issue one, volume one, the uh, Kirby's, Jack Kirby's 100, 800 pages of monster stories, just brilliant. And the weird thing was, the most recent one, okay, almost a couple of days ago, I read was Monstro, the Menace from the Murky Depths. And that was just, just blew me away because it seems to be the missing link, I think. I wish I had known about this before I wrote the book. Uh, the missing link, I think, between the challenges and the Fantastic Four is just half of each. It's like, merge them together and this is the story. Can I read you the very first panel? Absolutely. Do you see if you recognize this? Without warning, as suddenly as a thunderclap, Monstro appeared on that fateful day at Seaport in Small Iron Curtain Nation, and the world trembled. Does that sound familiar at all? Probably not. Particularly the first line, without warning as suddenly as a thunderclap. No, okay, it's, it's, it's really hit me because you haven't read the Fantastic Four with you one so many times. That's how Fantastic Four One starts, pretty much, not quite word for word. Uh, Fantastic Four One starts with a sudden fury of a thunderbolt. A flare is shot into the sky over a central city. Three awesome words take form as if by magic and a legend is born. Two exclamation marks. Hmm. It's, it's, kind of just, it's the same format, it's the same wording, it's the same start. So much about this story is just like, I'm reading the Fantastic Four. No, no, I'm reading the Challengers. Now, which one is it? I could go on and on. I mean, the guy looks like Reed Richards. He acts like a cross between uh, Professor Haley and Ace. Um, the central character is basically the Kraken from the, the last tryout challenges. So, oh, it's just, love it, love it, love it. Do you know what issue this appeared in? What comic? Because I'm not familiar with it. Tales of Suspense, number eight, March 1960. So there we go. And there's other parts about the writing too it makes me think i'm pretty sure that stan lee had a lot to do with the first two pages the rest of it i suspect not but i don't know i'm just guessing you know i can only go on what i've read but anyway it was just loved it loved it loved it this is all tingly like wow so um what creator do you think is underrated right well if it's uk i'd have to say ken reed uh but since nobody will have heard of him i'll say well it's otherwise underrated doug munch the Munch, Mench, Munch, Munch. I think it's Mench, but I'm not <laughs> Mensch. sure. There we go, Doug. Well, here's one on the Fantastic Four, particularly because that's what generally seen as a really a low point by most people. But I love it. I just think it's brilliant. He did a year with Bill Sienkiewicz, and I, I just, just, it just really, it, it ticks on my buttons. It's just new and interesting and crazy, and there's loads going on, and it, it moves stuff forward, and it goes into the real deep Fantastic Four lore. Oh, I, I just think it's brilliant. I know that Doc himself didn't like it that year. He felt he was frustrated because he wasn't allowed to use any of the big names. I guess that's why I liked it so much. No, I just thought that was really good. Loved that, that period. Oh, it's interesting. Uh, when I the, my first guest on the podcast was Shaxper, mm-hmm. and um, he also answered Doug Mensch because he he just loves Doug Mensch, and he's doing like a read-through uh, review on the forums of 
uh, chronological order of every comic Doug Mensch ever wrote, mm-hmm. and he hasn't he hasn't gotten to Fantastic Four yet. So I'll be curious to see what his opinion of those issues are when he gets that far. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's sort of interesting, and I, I can understand again that other people might not like it. I like it because having read the previous two hundred and ten issues, whatever it was, you know. It, that made it really mean a lot to me what he was doing, what he was saying, and the, the direction he was going in. I can see somebody else just picking it up would say, well, "So, you know, what's what's, what's the point?" But yeah, people like different things. To me, Doug Mensch, yeah. So uh, I have a feeling I might know the answer to this, but who's a creator <laughs> that you think is overrated? I'm going to maybe give a pass on this one because I think everyone has different tastes. Yeah, people plus tastes change. I mean, for example, my favourite artist ever was George Perez, and I still think he's utterly brilliant. But now I wouldn't call him a favourite artist. You know, his tastes change. I wouldn't like to say I was going to say maybe Byrne, but on the other hand, I think his reputation is about right. I think he's utterly superb in some ways. Other ways, he drives people crazy. Probably like every artist. So I wouldn't like to say anyone is objectively overrated. Other than the obvious ones, I wouldn't read them in the first place. So I, I, I couldn't really comment on, on those. Oh, Sorry, well, it's a bit no, answer. That, no, that's all right. I would have been perfectly fine if you said Byrne was overrated because I, I can't stand John Byrne. But I was really into his stuff at the time in, in the mid-80s. His Fantastic Four and his Alpha Flight were both coming out when I started reading, and I loved both of them. Uh, not so much anymore. <laughs> Let's just say. Well, the funny thing is, well, I reread his Fantastic Four run a couple of years ago, and at the time, I was really annoyed at the, what the changes he'd made, and I was ready to tear into it. But I actually really enjoyed it. And it's like, okay, I think if, I, if there weren't the Fantastic Four, I think they were just—it's good comics. I think that particular run, I think he did a good job on it. Um, a lot of reasons I don't like it, but I couldn't—I can't really say he's a bad writer. Not back—not back then. I think it was—he did the job. You know, good workman. Just other things about what he did drove me crazy. Who's a comic book character that uh, you love? Um, I'd like to say probably Captain Victory because again I, I just read him a couple of years ago and always wanted to see what this character was about and, and did what I normally do go into depth and sort of picking apart every panel and I really started to feel like a, I knew this character he's got real depth there he's a great sense of humour very thoughtful um, really good with his friends I thought and I just really felt like it was a really deep character I mean I think I'm reading too much into it I'm, I'm a great believer in uh, the, the death of the author that really once the person's written it you know, it's, it's what the reader brings to it that, that makes it what it is and maybe I'm imagining all this but I, I just thought it was that's the one I'd like to meet and talk to. Oh, it's interesting. I haven't read much Captain Victory. I do have some. I, I was at a comic show a couple of years ago now, and I was going through one of these like uh, 50 cent boxes or something, and I found some issues of Captain Victory that were still in the original subscription envelopes. Ooh. Um, that had like the person's address and like the logo for the publisher on it. So I bought those just because it was kind of a cool, you know, ephemera. Like it was, I like that sort of stuff. You know, I like comics that are still like in the, the poly bags that, that when they used to sell them in like those three comics for a dollar sets. Mm-hmm. Like I love that sort of thing. So I do have some issues of Captain Victory, and I've looked through them, but I haven't really read them too much. I these days when I try to like get the entire run of a series before I read mm-hmm. any of it, and since I'm still missing a couple issues of it, I have them, but I haven't really read them yet because I want to wait till I get all of them. Oh, oh yeah, and again, as I said before, I can quite understand if other people really don't like it because everyone brings their own what they're interested in. And the first time I sort of skimmed through each issue, I couldn't really see what there was to it. I could see myself not of liking it, not liking it. But because it was Kirby, and I was really interested in Kirby, I read him again and again and again. And it was only later I started to see just the, the way he'd sort of smile at certain times, the way he reacts, the way he'd lead people on. I don't know. It felt like I got to know him as a person. But on the first read-through, I can see why people wouldn't like it. So who's a character that you don't like? Later Wolverine, Deadpool, the sort of violent, porn star, gritty style. It just doesn't do anything for me. Again, each of those characters, I'm sure there are very well-written stories. And you know, I'm sure there are, are high points. And it depends on the creator and who's writing it and blah, blah, blah. But I tend to be an optimist and sort of an idealist the more cynical characters don't do anything for me i'm i'm right with you on that we have had a lot of people have said some combination of wolverine deadpool and punisher those seem to be the three the big three when it comes to comes to characters people don't like they're characters that are fine for what they are but almost like their, their popularity has turned them into something that they aren't um, yeah. and it's resulted in a lot of oversaturation and bad writing as a result um, oh yeah i remember a few years ago working out that wolverine appeared in i think it was 17 comics in one month 17 comics in one month that's just oh, 
<laughs> you lost me just there. Uh, so if uh, you were stranded on a desert island and you could bring just one comic, a story, a run, a whole series, uh, whatever, uh, what comic would you bring to read? Oh dear. First response was going to be a technical point. If I was stranded on a desert island, I wouldn't have any time to read. I remember this, a 1970s uh, reality TV star before reality TV became a thing here in Britain. He got stranded on an island for, for a show. He said, it's not like you think. It's awful. He lost like half his body weight. He said, spent the entire day just desperately trying to find food. <laughs> but anyway, that's just me being. Uh, right. Uh, Fantastic Four was the obvious one. Um, but on the other hand, I'd want to take the opportunity to read something I hadn't read before. Um, I'd like maybe a complete set of Ken Reeves, Jonah, you've probably never heard of him, it's a brilliant comic, I could talk about that for ages, but I suspect I'd be disappointed if I saw them all together. An awful lot of British comics look great in single installments, but you put them together, this is why I'm under the American ones, some of the writing here isn't very good. Some of it is. Um, I was going to say subnormality, but I need an internet connection for that. It's really wordy, and the only time I get to read it is if I had a long time and I had nothing else to read. But anyway, I'll go with Marvel classic comics, the, the classic um, adaptations they did in the 70s. I just love them. So much to enjoy in such a little space. This is the world's best stories, and I like the way the Marvel did them. I thought the Classics Illustrated approach is a bit too boring, basically. The Marvel's approach was good. I like those. Love those comics. Oh, that's an interesting choice. Final question. If you could have one dream series, any creator or, or team, you doing any characters, what would you want to read? Oh, well, I mean, ideally, I'd get a huge truck of money and dump it all on, on Jack Kirby's front lawn, um, plus um, a document that gave him complete ownership and complete rights to do whatever he wanted and say, look, give me another five issues of the Fantastic Four. Finish it off how you would have finished it. Where were you going? What were you going to do? Um, failing that, I get that. I'm terrible here because I... I, I talk too much about these things, think too much about them, I'm sure. Part of me was thinking, I wouldn't really want any living or dead characters because they change so much. You know, like, if, for example, if Kirby came back in the Fantastic Four, it would not be anything like he did before, regardless of any question of who created it, because he changed, you know. His 1980s stuff was not the same as his 1960s stuff, which was not the same as his 1940s stuff. So I kind of think, well, there is so much I haven't read as well, so maybe I wouldn't mind. What I would like, I mean, this is more achievable, I'd like some millionaire or billionaire to give a ton of money to Marvel and get Carl Kessel and Steve Rue to do the Fantastic Four. Ideally with George Perez every second month because I know Steve Rude isn't the fastest artist. I love that. Oh, that would be so good. And that's kind of achievable because they're all alive. Kessel and Rude and Perez on the Fantastic Four. That would be so good. Okay, great. Well, now that we've uh, got the formalities out of the way, I think it's time to <laughs> dive into Fantastic Four number one. So I'll just go over real quick for our listeners. Anyone who's a longtime comic fan or reader has heard the classic origin story of Marvel Comics that Stanley has told dozens and dozens of times where uh, supposedly there's a couple different elements to it but basically he his publisher Martin Goodman came to him and said you know we want to do a superhero book because um, Justice League is selling and Stan went back and talked to his wife about it his wife Joan said you know because he was ready to quit he was so tired of doing comics and Joan said you know if you're going to quit anyway why don't you just this one time do comics the way you want to do them and because uh, what can they do if you're going to quit anyway they can't if they fire you so what might as well do what you want to do just one time so he said okay and Fantastic Four was created that's that's the story that everyone's been given. Of course, we know now that that's a great story, but whether any of it's true is a matter of debate, and that's what we're about to debate, because you've written a whole book basically dissecting Fantastic Four number one, page by page and panel by panel, to show how the comic and the Marvel Universe really came about. So, how did it come about? <laughs> how did it come about? Right. Oh, gosh. Um... I'll start off with a caveat. If you challenge me in any of this, I'm likely to cave on everything. Simply because as, you know, when I'm doing something, I'm really intense into it. And then later on, I sort of step back and get a bit more, a little bit more sensible, perhaps. And I mean, if you ask me now, I'd say, goodness knows, nobody knows. But what I do know, and what I'm absolutely convinced of, is that what we're seeing in Fantastic Four 1 was... A seamless, normal Kirby comic. You know, everything in it was just a, a one step from what he was doing previously, and, and so on and so on. There is no break, there's no change, there's no sudden difference. It's it's a classic Kirby comic. And yeah, every element is just a continuous, smooth, 
sort of transition. I, I don't see it as being anything new. I think people think it's new, and I certainly thought it was new, because we don't tend to read what came before. And th that's the message I'd write now. I mean, if I was writing that book again now, you know, two months later and older and wiser, I'd simply say, just read the stuff that came before. But anyway, how it happened, I think that the main thing was it was just business as usual almost. Um, there was, I think Kirby did like nine comics that month. Obviously not everything. Some of the time it was just, just a cover of something or like a four-page story. But like nine comics. He, would, he couldn't have spent more than a week on this at most. They were so busy. You know, it was just rattling it off. In hindsight, it was this big deal. But at the time, it was just another comic. A very good comic, I think so. And it did actually, it was a number one. But well, here's something actually, which I wish I'd put in the book. I only just discovered this recently. The sales in 1961 were actually going down. Now, as most, most people know, uh, the comic company was owned by Martin Goodman, and yeah, he, his really his interest was in the men's magazines and sports magazines and TV listings and everything else. He did. Comics are a really small part of it. They'd recently had some crises, and, and they're basically going to go under. Uh, one, in 1957, he was publishing, I think, 85 comics. Normally he didn't publish that many, but he was ramping up for various reasons. And then suddenly they lost their distributor. And so, yeah, Mike Vesalio, who wrote uh, The Secret History of Marvel Comics, I'm getting his name right, he had a chart up on his wall, he showed me a photo of it. He was listing every single comic, he was looking at everything that the company did in, in tremendous depth, and you have these 85 titles, and suddenly, bang, it all dies. You know, like eight titles surviving. It was such a, a disaster. Um, so, yeah, the company, the company was in a terribly bad way. Then come 1961, the sales were declining again. They, it was very realistic that they expected the company to go, go bust or just stop publishing comics. The comics were not making them any money. Um, somehow, it got persuaded to try a new title. Those would have superheroes in it, and uh, it sold. Just to add a little bit to that, um, for listeners who may not be aware of what happened, uh, with Martin Goodman, he made this really ill-advised decision in terms of um, his distributor. And when his distribution system broke down, Marvel was basically forced to go to DC and and have asked DC to distribute Marvel's books. And uh, DC, you know, I've got some major issues with how DC conducted business in the 1950s. Uh, but one thing they did, I guess, to their credit here, after shutting down a lot of their main competitors like EC uh, earlier in, in the decade, they, I think, realized that they needed to keep some competition around or else the whole comic industry might go under. So they agreed to, to distribute some of Marvel's books, but they would only agree to do eight per month, which is why they had to drastically cut down, you know, to less than 10% of what they were previously doing. Now, one thing that would Martin Goodman and Stan Lee did to sort of trick the system is that they actually put out 16 different titles, but they were all bi-monthly. So every month yeah. there would be like a rotating group of books. My understanding is that when it came time to put out Fantastic Four number one, they were so unsure about whether or not it was going to work that rather than cancel one of their existing titles, they just snuck in a ninth book. So the, that month, instead of putting out the normal eight, they just put out nine and hoped that DC would roll with it, which apparently they did. The basic story is that they were in a bad way. And, and they, yeah, they managed to get it out, which is great. Yeah, and another thing that you you bring up in your book a couple times that's important here is just the the history of Kirby himself. You know, in in the fifties he had his own publishing company with Joe Simon, and they had some struggles because of the Comics Code Authority and that whole shenanigans. So he went over to DC for a while, but then he sort of found himself in a feud with. DC over a comic strip that he was doing with one of the DC editors and the, the royalties from that. And so when he was sort of blackballed from DC, he was kind of out of options and he went back to over to Stan Lee at Atlas and happened to walk through the door at just the right time for him uh, and for Marvel because just earlier that same weekend, he came in on a Monday and just the previous Friday, their top artist, Joe Manili, uh, had died in a horrible accident where he was hit by a train and so they were suddenly in need of a big gun and Kirby walked in the door this is in 1958 uh, immediately got hired and was doing basically as much work as he could you know put out since he was for all intents and purposes doing a lot of the load on most of the books yeah ex exactly uh, that, that, that's the, the big the main sort of take-home message I want, if people don't read anything of the, of the book I wrote, that, that's fine. But what they've got to remember is that Kirby was the big gun. You know, he's sold at least twice. He created comics that sold a million copies an issue. You know, not once, twice. 
A million copies this year, that's a lot of copies. You know, whereas, I mean, a, a typical uh, Goodman comic was selling 150,000, 180,000, maybe a really good one wants 200,000, you know. And whereas a Kirby comic was selling 300,000 plus, you know, occasionally uh, astronomic numbers. Just, I mean, this guy was big, you know, his name was on the covers of stuff. He was, he was the big, and to have him just walk in the door when your company is in trouble, you know, wow, you know, there is a God. It's fantastic. It's, it's amazing. It's a big, great story. A great movie. Well, one thing that I was not as familiar with that I learned a lot from your book about is the connection between the Fantastic Four and, of course, the challenges of the unknown. Now, I was familiar with the basic idea that a lot of stuff from Fantastic Four uh, came from Challenge of the Unknown, but I'll be honest, I've only read a couple issues of Challengers, and they were, they were much later issues, not the Kirby ones, and I found them to be insanely boring. So I've never <laughs> really read any of the early ones. So I, I was really intrigued and interested to see the stuff that you wrote about where you show the development of the challenge of the unknown and how that basically flowed directly into fantastic four number one yeah and again this is just just from reading it i mean i've no idea what kirby intended well you got some idea from what he said later and as i say i'm a great believer that you the death of the author and what they've written that that's the evidence and i also well aware that statistically it is possible to see parallels everywhere even when there aren't parallels when someone says you know how could that have happened well quite easily these things do happen but there's so many parallels as a reader I just find it so easy to see the challenges as just the previous issues of the Fantastic Four. I, mean, I now think of Fantastic Four 1 as challenges issue 9, because it fits in so neatly. I get there's, there's a gap in time, but as far as I'm concerned, it's the same characters. And, and I love that, because yeah, it answers all these questions, explains so much if it wasn't there before. And I'm not saying this is intended by, by Kirby. I mean, I know he did see the one leading to the other. I don't think he, he planned it in the way like a modern comic reader would plan. I know he didn't. But to me, as a reader, yeah, Fantastic Four 1 is Challengers 9. For those uh, listeners who aren't familiar with the Challengers, I know you go into your book in some detail about the similarities between the parallels from the characters and how similar each of the members of the Challengers are to each of the members of the Fantastic Four. If you could just go into that a little bit for people who aren't familiar with the Challengers of the Unknown, because these days, you know... Challenges of the Unknown had a, had a comic that ran for a long time. Uh, you know, it went for, I think, something like 79 issues, and then it was brought back in the mid-70s for another several issues. So it ran for 85 issues over a period of 16 or 17 years. But nowadays, people don't really know who they were or anything about the characters. Oh, yeah. And my experience of them was very much the same as yours. Um, a few years ago, I bought what I thought was the, the first um, showcase. Is it showcase? The, the, the big, cheap editions that, that uh, the reprints that DC do, um, like the equivalent of Marvel Essentials. I don't know, I bought what I thought was the first one. I'd accidentally bought the second one by mistake. I, I just kind of thought it was a bit dull, you know. I thought, oh, dude, is this Kirby? Oh, well, never mind, you know. <laughs> it turned out I got the wrong one. Because it, after Kirby left, it was just like Monster of the Month stuff every month. There's a different monster and they beat him. And, okay, fine. Uh, but back in the Kirby stuff, I guess also because it's Kirby, I tend to read it more intensely. I'm, I'm sort of looking for clues. I'm looking more detail, reading it slowly. And I, I just loved it. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see these. I care about these people. I'm seeing them having personalities. A lot of people think that challenges haven't got personalities. And I can see why, again, that they're short stories. There's not an awful lot of space to develop these things. And they're very professional people. You know, they're not going to be sort of fighting amongst each other as much. But yeah, I, I loved it. Anyway, you ask, yeah, how do the challenges with Fantastic Four? Well, I just made a list in the, in the end of my book. The main thing is I've got the same origin. I mean, if you look at the origin of the Fantastic Four, the origin of the challenges, it's the same stuff, only it's a plane instead of a, an air, uh, a spacecraft. They narrowly survive a plane crash and they decide to devote their lives to doing good. It is, of course, four adventurers. They, they look very similar. Uh, the, the first house ad for the challenges had a, a pa panel with the four characters, which is pretty much identical to the panel with the four characters at the beginning of Fantastic Four Issue 1. Um, they got the same powers. In issue, the key issue is uh, challenges issue three. Uh, just to make it confusing, there was four issues of showcase before that where you first meet the challenges, and then they have eight issues of their own the book in which Kirby was pretty much in charge, and then it wasn't Kirby, and I don't care after that. Anyway, in issue three, um, Rocky, one of the challenges, goes into space in an experimental space capsule and comes back with superpowers. He has the ability to flame on, um, he can turn invisible, he has great strength, and he can grow to a great size, which isn't quite the same as stretching. Although, as a Fantastic Four nut, I would point out that what Mr. Fantastic actually does is he increases his size. He doesn't actually 
stretch. He doesn't actually get thin like a rubber band, but that's a technicality that most people couldn't care about, quite <laughs> rightly so. But yeah, Challenges of the Unknown, issue three, is the big like smoking gun. It's basically, he's got Fantastic Four powers in the same way that Fantastic Four got them. And I love it too, because it gives you the reason why they got the powers. Anyway, they have the same kind of adventures, the same kind of enemies. They wear the same costumes, um, the same sort of backgrounds, the same jobs, uh, a lot of the same scenes, the same... Everything's the same. They're the same poses, the, the same headquarters, um, same locations, they have the same technology. Um, so many of the, of the, the outstanding images. I mentioned Fantastic Four 7, um, where they go to Planet X. There's a scene where they're descending. Which, well, Kirby's on a few scenes like that. It's descending in an anti-gravity alien world. And there's a scene pretty much identical to that in Challengers. Um, they are fighting between the team members, not as much, but the one where Rocky gains the superpowers, it kind of goes to his head and there's a bit of fighting there and he's calmed down by the girl. Um, yes, I, I love it. I mean, beyond that, you can look at it and, and then start to find other parallels. And I, I fully admit I'm looking for these myself as a reader. You know, I want her to be parallels and so I'm looking for things. Someone else could say, oh, well, that's a coincidence. Fine, yeah. But, you know, I read these because I enjoy them. I read these because I want to read stuff into them. I, I I totally understand these things are written very quickly and often are formulaic. But when you've got somebody as good as Kirby or any very good writer, they, they reward you. They reward the effort you put into them. And, and that's the, my point. A great writer rewards you. You put the effort in and you're glad you did. You can read it and reread it and it's just glorious. I could go on and on. They've got the same emotional core, that's the other thing. Uh, the same reason for being there in the first place. I reckon that Reed is the same as a character called Ace. I reckon the Thing is Rocky. Um, they're both wrestlers. Yeah. I think Johnny is Red. I think Sue is June. Um, and so on and so on and so on. I think Professor Haley probably left and that's where um, Prince Namon comes in, which is kind of fun. But yeah, it's technicality. So beyond the similarity of the characters and the similarity of their origin, we mm-hmm. see in Fantastic Four number one, there's basically uh, you have the introductory section where we meet the characters, then we get their origin, which, as you say, is very similar, even uh, in panel layout, to the Challengers of the Unknown's origin. And then it's followed up by this uh, story where they fight the Mole Man. Mm-hmm. Now, you go through in detail, as I mentioned, panel by panel, showing that Kirby not only wrote the story for Fantastic Four number one, but that the story he wrote was actually very different from what Stan Lee ended up doing with it, where Stan Lee came in and he edited it later and added a bunch of dialogue that significantly changed what the story was actually supposed to be about. Yeah, no, I'm not the first person to point this out. I mean, there's that great, um, there's a blog, Kirby Lee, where they go into Lee and Kirby uh, comics, but just remove the words, and they show that it's often a very different story. Yeah, I'm not the first person to point this out <laughs> by any means. But I find it fascinating by just ignoring the writing and seeing what the pictures show. It often is a very different story. In this case, uh, the Molman story, it seems to me it has to be about the atom bomb everything's about the atom bomb and yet the atom bomb is not mentioned in the dialogue at all yeah, I just found it really intriguing that doesn't really prove who wrote it to a degree you could still argue that Lee has added something richer and better and made it much better than fine you know? but just from a curiosity point of view I just find it intriguing and I, I do love the way that Kirby writes personally I prefer him um, and so I like just trying to get back to the, the raw Kirby original if possible to get into this a little bit more with the Mole Man part of the story in particular by looking at the art and taking away Stanley's dialogue, we get a very different version of who Mole Man is and what his origin is, his motivations. But uh, you also suggest that um, in the original version, it may have been Reed Richards, or at the originally just an unnamed scientist, I guess, with two teenagers who would be Sue and Johnny, and that the thing was not present at all in the original yeah. version of the story. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure he can't have been there. Just every time he appears, there's two pages where he, he, yeah, he fights a monster. And those are definitely, I mean, he, he's, he's central to that. Just the whole style, the art of that, the way that it fits, it just, the story works better without those two pages being there. It's like someone's said, okay, we've got other thing now, he's not doing anything, we can't just keep on shoving him in the corner of a picture, because everywhere else he's just really awkwardly drawn in the background somewhere. Like, you know, he wasn't supposed to be there. And so they had these two pages, and it's really interesting, and good two pages, but without those two pages, no, it's it just doesn't fit. I mean, just look at the last frame of Fantastic Four, where he's the thing who supposedly that the... The pilot, you know, isn't piloting the plane. He's, he's just really awkwardly in the corner. Every time he appears, he, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't, he's got no reason for being there. It's just a better story if you white out the bits where he is. <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't play any role there. And sometimes, absurdly so. I mean, he's the strong guy. Wouldn't he be fighting the monsters? Other than just, it's, it's just, it just doesn't fit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think. there's other uh, anomalies that you point out. For instance, when the Mole Man is uh, fighting Reed Richards with, with a stick. And... Uh, 
yes. like Reed forgets that he has superpowers for some reason. Or oh yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's the big thing. All these things that they build, one thing has to build on another, and it, the early conclusions lead to the later ones. So I'm not just saying that, that Ben Grimm can't be there you know, just because the pictures don't look right. It is just the biggest thing is you know, they haven't got superpowers. They can't have. There's too many. Like, the, the, the smoking gun for me with the superpowers was when they fall down a hole and are lost in the dark. Now this is. A Johnny Storm who can supposedly fly and needs to be rescued and he's falling down a hole because he's falling. He can fly and he's lost in the dark. He's called the human torch for goodness sake. You know, how can the human torch be lost in the dark? And we've already established that he likes being the human torch. He loves doing this. It's not like he's forgotten how to be it or it doesn't. So, oh, I can't fly. He knows he can fly. He loves flying. He loves... It just, it just doesn't make any sense. And just the way the powers are used is just really awkward. And, like, again, it would be a better story without them. Just the, the drawing is awkward and strange. So that's, that was the first thing. When you start to think, these powers weren't there originally. Like, this is not a story about superpowers. Then you start looking at what else is a bit odd. Now, wouldn't it make a lot more sense if that bit wasn't there and so on and so on? The funny thing, actually, is... I won't go on to this. I could talk about this topic for ages. Um, another main interest is in, in Bible studies. I love studying the Bible just from a sort of academic point of view. And a, a big part of Bible studies, because we don't have the originals very often, is just taking the text and trying to work out what makes sense and separating the parts and saying, well, this contradicts that, so maybe these are originally two different documents. That's kind of what I'm doing. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I actually, in the Bible, I think it goes to far too far. I think the Bible's a lot more unified than, than most critics think. But I just find it kind of funny that I'm doing the same thing with the, with the Fantastic Four, saying, okay, here, here's the document. This just doesn't make any sense. If this wasn't there, it would make a lot more sense. Hmm, yeah, yeah this really fits. This character who would make more sense if he wasn't there, he's very badly drawn there. That's not like Kirby would draw him. Maybe somebody else has had him, or maybe he's been added really quickly at the end. Yeah. So I'm building up this this huge... I, can, I could be wrong, like I guess I could be completely wrong. I think there's so much evidence, you know, that there's no powers, Ben doesn't fit, um, the way that the, the, the two new pages make, make Sue look really sort of older and sexier, whereas the other pictures make her look quite young and teenage. There's so many different things. Like the, the, the face of the, of the monster on the, on the splash page, where it looks like his face is distorted, it's just really badly drawn. Again, to me, it looks as if he's only been... His face has been changed in order to make space for the human torch. It makes more sense if you see the pictures. It's, it's just loads of really weird stuff going on in that story. It just makes a lot more sense if you take off the weird stuff. And it's, it's just a standard, very interesting story. Not about superpowers at all. It's about this scientist and these two children or, or these two teenagers. Well, another interesting thing that you that you point out from the first half of the story, as you as we talk about here, it's kind of like there's the Mole Man story, which we've just been discussing, but then there's the first two parts where we mm -hmm. get introduced to the Fantastic Four and we get their origin. And while the thing seems completely superfluous in the second half with the Mole Man, one thing that I found very interesting was uh, that you look at the original story in terms of the character and how you see, if you take away Stanley's dialogue, it seems to be a story about Ben Grimm, who basically loses everything he has because he turns into this monster, but specifically how you're seeing in the original art that it was intended to be sort of a love triangle between Definitely. between uh, Thing and Reed and Sue, but Lee has sort of taken out that aspect with his dialogue to make it seem like there's no real connection between the thing and the invisible girl. Yeah, he does leave one line in there where he says, I want her to look at me the same way she looks at you. But it's like a throwaway line. Um, I'd also point out here that the love triangle it becomes really clear if you look at the other issues as well. Every single time when Ben Grimm fights the others, when he's aggressive towards the others, every time, it's always over Sue. Sometimes this isn't obvious in the dialogue. We take the dialogue out and you always find Sue is there and you, you see how he's building up and getting frustrated and, you know, and then they'll snap eventually. Okay, there's a couple of times too when it's um, Johnny like needling him but even then he's always needling him about his appearance about how you never get a girl I mean it's kind of obvious even without the dialogue yeah it's always about Sue every single time that is why it's, they fight each other you know, we tend to look back now and think you know, that it was a team which hated each other and they fought together kind of but it was always about Sue it was always about Ben Grimm losing this girl he was he adored yeah and then you look at the first issue and it seems to me very clear there so one of the big things that you talk about is and here's some one thing we might disagree on but mm -hmm. I, I feel like you've made a very compelling case in your book and if you just if you look at 
the issues without the dialogue. It, everything you're saying is pretty clear. So I think it's, for me, I'm convinced that this is something that Kirby basically wrote and devised himself and that Lee came in and edited and added. He pretty significantly edited it, rearranging the sequence of the story and, and having them add in the thing, for instance. And he changed a lot of the context of everything with his with his dialogue. I know that you contend that basically the original story that Kirby was writing seems to be a much more adult and mature story. It's about fears, you know, adult fears of relationship fears and also about uh, events that were happening at the time to do with the radioactivity and the Cold War, whereas Lee is sort of dumbing it down. Yeah, that's what's putting it crudely, yes. I agree with you on that, but I'm not sure that that was necessarily a bad thing in that, you know, as Stan, Stan's mentioned before in interviews that he was sort of under a mandate from publisher Martin Goodman to have the comics aimed at a, an audience for children. And that, I think, was a direct response to what happened with the Comics Code Authority, where, you know, they came in and they, they literally stamped out all the mature content in comics, and leaving a void where a lot of the adult readers that had been previously reading comics, like crime comics and horror comics, there was nothing left for them to do, so they sort of drifted away, so comics had to tailor themselves to the children, which is the audience that they were left with. I wonder if the stories that the story that Kirby was doing here and the themes he was exploring were possibly too adult and too mature for the audience that they were trying to sell the book to. I suspect that as an adult, I would find the original Kirby story more interesting than what we actually have. And yet, I wonder if um, the book would have been as successful for the audience actually reading it if Lee hadn't dumbed it down for them. Uh, yes, I, I totally agree with you. Yes, I have to. That's a, I completely agree. I later argue that the sales-wise, that Kirby always sold in you know, a good sales of three hundred thousand an issue at that time. What was normal for him, and all that the Marvel Comics ever did was simply go back up to what normal Kirby numbers are. Um, but yes, it's always easy to have an alternative history and say, oh, yes, had they been more adult, you know, they'd have just got more adult readers. You may, you may well be right. Yeah, you could well be right. It's easy to look back. And the bottom line is, yeah, I'm an adult now. I like the adult stuff. But it was true when I was younger. I mean, it sounds very condescending, but, you know, I didn't like Kirby's writing when I was younger. I, did, I liked the simple stuff. I liked to open a comic and know what was going on. And that's exactly what, what, what Lee gave me. So, yeah... I better explain how this book came about. Uh, it wasn't really, I've got this great hatred of, of San Lee, although that's, you know, sometimes I do. <laughs> but uh, it's just, I start to think of Kirby as just this fantastically good writer. But of course, in order to demonstrate that, I've got to say, well, what did he actually write? I mean, after 1970, it's pretty obvious, he pretty much wrote everything that he drew. Before then, just controversy, controversy, controversy. So I wanted to try and nail down what he wrote, and my argument is he wrote everything. And my argument also is that he's a better writer, and he's more of an adult writer, and he's just his stuff lasts, and that's why 50 years later we've got movies based on his stories, and not movies based on other stories, not as much. Because he was just writing really, really good stuff, and he just loved his work. But yes, he may well have a very good point, because of the historical period, that maybe it wouldn't have worked. I mean, the fact is, he struggled constantly, you know. It was a difficult life. So many good writers there, which is the EC comics, for example. People writing great stuff, really good stories. But it, it didn't work, you know, for whatever reason, whatever unjust, unfair, this universe is just really unfair to these people. It didn't work. And Stanley's stuff did work, because as you say, the kids were young, and you know, that's what they wanted. And that's what I wanted when I was young. So, so yeah, you got a good point. So I, I'm basically going to agree with everything you say. Uh, but, but just come back to the idea, I think Kirby is just a brilliant writer. And the more older I get, the more I love his stuff. And the less interested I am in the other stuff it just doesn't attract me anymore but it did when I was younger and it might do again and maybe I'm just being a horrible snob I am a snob I'm mean, quite an elitist and I think a time may come when I start looking more, more kindly at other people that's the bottom line I love Kirby's stuff I think he was a great writer before 1961 I think it's a mistake to think he suddenly wasn't a writer and then became a writer again I think he was a writer all the time and he was a really good writer and I love his work but yeah, yeah I'll accept that uh, better for kids and maybe that's what had to be done at the time yeah. well I, I think Kirby there's a tendency from fans to look at 
Kirby as a writer only in the 70s and say, here's his stuff in the 70s, and uh, because his dialogue is kind of weird, he needed Stan Lee to, to write the dialogue for him. And I, I get that, because sometimes when I read some of the Kirby stuff in the 70s, I'm like, this, the dialogue is very stylized in, a, in an idiosyncratic way that uh, you really have to get used to. Oh, definitely, but, but it's really good stuff. It's a backhanded compliment where they basically say, "Well, Kirby had all these brilliant ideas," which is which is true, but it also ignores. It's sort of a way to insult the writing, where you say, "Oh, these these are full of good ideas," but they're also full of good stories. And mm. That's something he doesn't really get a lot of credit for. But as always, when it comes to his work with Stan and at Marvel, it becomes so difficult to figure out, for me, like, just who should get credit for what. Like, because Stan had his finger in every pie as not just the scripter, but also the editor, it becomes very difficult to figure out where credit for his editing should end and credit for the writing should start. Everything is so blended together. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's one of the great things about reading the Monster Bus. It seems to me, I mean, I may be kidding myself, I and mean, I know there are people who know a lot more about this than I do. It just seems, you can, I think I can see, you can see how, how it worked, how the editing became more and more. I mean, again, I go back to the story of Monstro. The first two pages, the dialogue to me looks like it is heavily edited by, by Lee. It's just so similar to the, the way he was writing dialogue in Fantastic Four One. But then towards the end, it seems more back to Kirby. I, my feeling is that most of the dialogue in The Monster Bus is by Kirby. I mean, Lee didn't sign any of this stuff. There's no reason to think he had to do anything other than light editing to all of this. But by Fantastic Four One, it was pretty heavy editing. And another point is he never actually claimed to be the writer until Fantastic Four issue nine, which, because they were bi-monthly, was over, just over a year later. And I think my feeling is what happened is during the Monsters comics, he was dabbling with the editing a bit more than an editor would normally do and liking it. Fantastic Four One, he decides to really heavily edit it and then it sells really well. And so he's quite reasonable. You're going to look at the sales and think, well, what's the difference? I edited this. I gave it my light touch. It sold well. You know, I rewrote all the writing. I think I, I'm justified in calling myself a writer. Fair enough. Now, he may well have written other things. I mean, I'm just going by what the Monster Comics and what I've read. It seems to me that the Monster Comics, you can see him going from editor to heavy editing to calling himself a writer and sort of feeling quite justified in doing so. It may well be that he was writing tons of stuff as well elsewhere. Um, I don't really have the expertise just to say I haven't read the, the uh, war comics and the romance comics and the kids comics and so on. I don't know. But just that's how it seems to me. Well, I, I don't necessarily think you're wrong. It's interesting. I was going to say, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but part of Stan's story that he always tells is that his wife convinced him to try doing what he really wants to do. It's interesting that uh, Stan... Stan Lee is, it's, it was originally a pen name. Of course, his, his birth name was Stanley Lieber. And he always said that he didn't, he used Stan Lee as his pen name in comics because he wanted to save his real name for when he did important real writing. He wanted to, be, he wanted to write novels. He wanted to write for television and for movies. And so Stan Lee was just the pseudonym he used to protect himself. So when he went into serious writing, he wouldn't have the stigma of being a comic book writer. And so, like, he he always seemed to have the, an aspiration to be a bigger deal as a, as a writer and to be more of a writer and less of an editor. And so when we have this story where his wife is telling him, you know, just this one time, why don't you do what you want to do? I think there's some truth to that in terms of him just saying, to heck with it, I'm just going to put more of my stamp on it. And one oh, I totally, reasons, totally agree. One thing that I found interesting that I'm not sure, I think you're probably not aware of, you just said you haven't really read much of his the romance comics. Stan was writing uh, a lot of, um, there are sort of teen humor books. And mm -hmm. my guess is he probably was doing it similar to the way that he was working with Kirby. But in those books, he was mostly working with Stan Goldberg. So unlike uh, Patsy Walker, for instance, or Millie the Model, they, it would be signed like Stan Lee and Stan G is how they'd sign mm -hmm. it. Not broken down in terms of who was writing or drawing. It would just say Stan Lee and Stan G or Stan and Stan, it would sometimes say. And I happen to have a couple issues right before and after Fantastic Four number one. Patsy Walker number 99 mm -hmm. came out with a cover date of December 1961, so it was one month after Fantastic Four number one. And if you look at that issue compared to the couple issues previous, like 97 and 98, to me, there there is a difference in the writing style. Previous issues are more sort of cookie-cutter, like Archie pastiches. You know, it's basically like just formula stuff. Issue 99, the issue after Fantastic Four number one, 
came out, has this ridiculously crazy story where Nikita Khrushchev visits the hometown of Patsy Walker and her friends and is so impressed and terrified by these teenage Americans that he flees back to the Soviet Union with his tail tucked between his legs, uh, intent on like starting this new uh, program of uh, like teen activism because he's so afraid that America's youth are going to destroy the Soviet <laughs> Union. And it's just, like, ridiculous. And it, it felt like, when I was reading that for the first time, I was like, this feels like someone who does not give a shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Who's just like, yeah, yeah, okay, it's, I'm going to take this issue of it's basically Archie and just do this crazy story where the Soviet premier visits visit them and just, like, add in all this nonsense where, like, Khrushchev is visiting their diner and, like, marveling at American youth, like, <laughs> drinking a milkshake. Uh, so it's interesting, like, there are points in your book where I, I felt like you're being a little too hard on Stan, but a I think a lot of people are in terms of ascribing motivation to him. Uh, yeah, I'd say that that's where, I mean, where, I'm in an interesting situation here, in that I've got a lot of respect for people who really hate Stan's guts, who've done a lot of research, and I haven't done the research, all I've done is I've read the comics, I've noticed a lot of them don't read the Fantastic Four, so I thought, okay, I can write this book, because the one thing I have done is read the Fantastic Four a lot, <laughs> you know, so I've got something I can offer, and they've done a lot of research, and there's an awful lot of people, well, not a lot of them, a few people who have done impeccable research, and are convinced that he's, you know, Satan incarnate, and never, never said anything true. My feeling is slightly different. I, I can't say my dad. My dad's a, a great sort of believer in people, and it always look for the good in people. And so I, I tend to think that people generally do tell the truth, at least from their point of view. And, yeah, there's so much interpretation and, and so on and so on. So I tend to think is yeah, I agree. If he said it, it's probably true. I think there's enough things he's said which have been embellished over the years that you know, wouldn't, just because he said it doesn't mean it's true. But I think in general, yeah, people who are with him tend to like him. So I, I disagree with the, a lot of the people I rely on for, for information who tend to think of him as just Stan Lai, basically. I, mean, I tend to think he probably was something to do. For example, I think the, the scripts, the synopsis to issue one, is probably genuine. I think it was written you know, about, about the time it's claimed to be, whereas not a lot of people who criticise Lee think it was made I think it was a forgery from years later. I don't. I don't think that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's opinions. The, the, my main opinion is that uh, I keep coming back to this: is that Jack Kirby is an excellent writer, certainly from an adult point of view. And uh, all these other things are in the past now. I mean, Lee is old. Kirby's dead. His family's now got a, a reasonable um, settlement with Marvel. You know, it's it's all in the past. But what isn't in the past is the quality of these stories. And that's what it comes down to. And so in my mind, Lee, yeah, whatever, you know, fade away eventually into history. But I like to think that Kirby's stuff will always be there. And so I'm ready to accept that Lee was telling the truth, or at least most of the time, or you know, reasonably as much as anybody else does. Yeah, I'm willing to accept that personally. Finally, I just want to talk about Kirby's contributions to Fantastic Four as a whole. Your book was mostly about Fantastic Four number one specifically, mm -hmm. yeah. but you do touch on sort of the evolution of the series. And I'm curious about the, the whole overall arc of Jack's contributions, because there's the fertile period in the middle of their run together where that most people, you know, consider to be one of the, if not the best and most creative runs in the history of comics, where they created all, or Jack created, depending on how you look at it, all of these amazing new characters. And then about the time that he started really getting into money and credit disputes with Stan, all of that kind of went away because he stopped introducing his new ideas and started saving them for himself. Yeah, this is actually what... Probably the biggest single thing that made me start thinking, maybe Kirby did this all himself. Because it seemed to me that when Stan Lee got too busy to get involved, sort of by 1965, 66, when Lee was doing less, that's when he got to his best. I was like, well, how, how does that work out? But again, I don't want this to be an attack on Lee. I mean, there's plenty of opportunities to attack him, and I was pretty, pretty angry towards him when I wrote the book. And there's a lot of reasons. It's, it's very easy to create a scenario where Lee is the devil himself. So I let people make their own decision. But... Yeah. Anyway, in terms of answering your question, the, the, the way it works, as far as I can see, the first 10 issues uh, are a block, because uh, I forget the name of the guy who did some interviews with Kirby and wrote a book about it. Unfortunately, didn't actually transcribe the interviews, but he's got a lot of information which can only have come from Kirby's interviews that he gave to this guy. And he, he mentioned there that they planned out the first 10 issues before Fantastic Four was one was ever published. Although I think they've changed 9 and 10. Anyway, so certainly issues 1 to 8 are like a block. But I think that is where Kirby was wanting to go. It's kind of dark, there's a lot of infighting. It's, it's very about, much about alienation. I think then you have a second 
second uh, period when Lee took a lot more interest and became a lot lighter and more family friend not family friendly but they, they, they liked each other they're sort of sitting down and it was a family story very sort of light and fluffy from sort of 10 to 25 30-ish I then get the impression that Lee got busier and busier because you know, the Marvel Universe was expanding and he's just had too much to do and a lot of it then is more Kirby and then you've got the golden period say from 36 to 67 67 it was the him story you know the, the cocoon man and that is when uh, Lee changed the dialogue in a way that really annoyed Kirby. He'd created an adult story with no no villains at all. Just about scientists going wrong and what happens if scientists create somebody who then judges the human race. You know, a brilliant idea. And Lee just turned it into good guys versus bad guys. And that, that was the point I think where Kirby just the, the last straw decided to hold back. So from '67, you don't get really any new characters apart from one I think he'd already kind of planned anyway is uh, Franklin. And with Franklin, of course, comes Annihilus. And I suppose you've got. Uh, Agatha Harkness as well that, that's, that was that it basically from 67 to the end I wouldn't say he's folding it in but as you say the best new ideas are getting held back for new gods so basically yeah I'd say issues 1 to 8 issues 8 to 36 36 to 67 67 to 102 that, that's how I see it and you also point out in the book that once Kirby left and Lee was writing it himself uh, without mm-hmm. Kirby the stories quickly became pretty repetitive uh, yeah I mean every single one of those stories is a Kirby story now, again I, I understand totally I'm drawing parallels here you could say oh well this is different in some key way and fair enough you can argue about that it just seems really interesting to me that every one of them can be traced back to a Kirby story and what really interested me was apart from the first one issue 105 which is the first new story since Kirby left, because Kirby left 102 in the middle of a, of a story. 105 is the next new one, and that seemed to be quite original. But if you, it turns out that's actually basically a copy uh, copied from the plot of what became 108. So in other words, it, it was like he'd copied from Kirby's plot that hadn't got published yet, because that one was held back so that it could be published on the month when Kirby's DC stuff started appearing. So yeah, everything from after Kirby left was just Lee copying an old Kirby story. Whereas everything before that was original. So I'm like, hmm. That just seemed to be a bit of a smoking gun to me. So what's your big takeaway from all of this? Since writing the book, having got it out of my system, I've just been doing nothing but read Kirby. You know? It's just I like Kirby's stuff and I like how he got it. I mean, Kirby, a lot of Kirby's stuff is, is derivative, but it, I just find it hangs together so well. I find he's, he's opening a window in the world. And, and rather than see it as a case of copying or not copying, I'm seeing it as a case of, I think he put it, has wonderful quotes where he said that other writers contrive, I conceive. That's how I see it. I, I think it's someone like um, Alan Moore, for example, superb writer, you know, probably in some ways the best comic writer we've got. And yet so contrived. You know, he'll contrive things to the last detail. Everything is thought out. Everything's constructed. This, it's created it's every little detail of this fake world. But it's also contrived, and eventually you get to the end of the fake world, and it is all fake, and you know, that's it. Whereas to me, what, what Kirby is doing is just different, completely different from other writers. He was conceiving, he was, like you said, putting ideas together, but he's putting real ideas together. He was, he was like opening a window in the world, saying, okay, here's this real thing, radiation, for example. Here's this other real thing, you know, space travel. You know, put them together. What could happen? You know, put them together, I'll conceive a baby, I'll conceive. And what is that baby going to look like? And he's giving us that alternate futures. That's why I'm doing this blog at the moment. No one's reading it. And I'll never get any readers. That's fine. Um, I've got a hard to Kirby called uh, Kirby the Prophet about just how he's sort of foreseeing possible futures. And, and that to me is what he's doing. That's why it's so exciting. Uh, everyone copies. Everyone, that's fine. But what he's doing is just creating something completely new and saying, what could this real world look like? It's just so different from... The whole concept of, of business and, and brands and superheroes and you know, very carefully constructed pastiches and so on, it's just different. It's, it's alive. I, I love it. It's just like opening a window in the future. So it's just, just a different, totally different way of looking at it. And so I look at some of that Stan Lee stuff and think, well, millions of people like it. Fine, yeah, whatever. So, and I like to think, you know, I like to think that my view is better. And that, you know, in 50 years' time, nobody will care who this Stan Lee character was, but they'll all be worshipping at the shrine of, of Jack Kirby. Almost certainly not, but uh, yeah, that's how I see it. Contrive versus conceive. He's deliberately, Kirby stuff is deliberately, he doesn't put the details in, he doesn't really flesh out the characters. He, he's talking about himself, he's talking about real people, he's talking about every man, he's talking about possibilities. 
it's hard to describe it. I mean, that's what I was originally going to write with this book, and what, I'm glad I didn't because I would have gone. I would have written something completely unreadable. But what Kirby was doing, the way he was writing, the way he was creating ideas and opening a window to the future and possible futures and things which could really, really happen, maybe in an extreme way. Ah, oh, just absolutely love it. Love the stuff. One other thing I wanted to say, sorry, interrupting you. I, again, the first question was, what's your first comic you read? And it illustrates how, how memory is an interesting thing. And again, why I, I'm losing interest in, in what, what I did myself, you know, in trying to track down exactly what happens. Because memory is so, is so fluid. Now we interpret things as so fluid. The first comic I ever read, I thought, was Monster Fun Issue 4. Well, that's the first comic that's ever bought for me when I was, I think, five years old or something. Anyway, I, and I very clearly remember the cover. And years later, I got all the early Monster Fun comics so I could track down exactly what issue it was. It turned out the cover I remembered was a composite cover that only existed in my memory. And this is how it works. This is how we remember things. This is how we see the world. It's so, so fluid. You know, we remember things that didn't happen because every time we remember something, we lay down the memory again. And what we're really remembering is, is our memory of it. We're not remembering the thing itself. I think that's what happened. That's, history is like that. So I'm going off a bit of a tangent here, aren't I? I, I what I'm saying is, I, part of me thinks that, yeah, Stanley was a complete not a liar, but that's not a big deal. It's not such a problem as people think. Because at the end of the day, it's whether those lies or those ideas touch you and work with you and build you and, and motivate you and teach you something. And you can go back to them and back to them. And if you can, then those are great stories. And if you can't, they'll just fade away and be forgotten. That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Tollworthy. And I do have a few things I want to share. If anyone wants to read Tollworthy's book, The Case for Kirby, which we've discussed in detail in this episode, you can do that online by going to zacksite.com backslash great american novel that's z-a-k-s-i-t-e dot com backslash great dash american dash novel that's tollworthy's fantastic foresight there's a whole bunch of stuff there that you can get into including the case for kirby in addition tollworthy wanted me to mention to everyone that's not familiar with it to go to comicbookplus.com in order to read all sorts of vintage and classic public domain comic books it's completely free and completely legal and there's a lot of great kirby stuff from the 40s and 50s there that you can read in its original form and as always you're welcome to visit us online at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation about this episode about any other episode and just about comics in general thanks again and i hope you'll join us next time for the next episode of classic comics forum podcast <laughs>